The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. We are launching our latest edition of the Opera Preview part of the podcast. This is where we talk about upcoming projects at Utah Opera. And as we record, Utah Opera is preparing Puccini's La Boheme, right, Carol? Absolutely. This is the way we've chosen to open our 23-24 season. This, for me personally, is my eighth production of La Boheme. So I've oh, basically really? done La Boheme any opera company where I've worked, plus multiple times. So that kind of brings up our first question. Why am I in a 30-year career on my eighth La Boheme? Why does La Boheme keep coming back? Why is it special? Well, it is considered one of the ABCs, right? Everybody talks about the ABCs of opera and how you can't go wrong if you program either Aida, Boheme, or Carmen, right? Yeah. Let's say that just for the sake of argument, Aida's maybe fallen off that a little bit. I think it probably has. It doesn't hold up as well. Its depictions of culture are a little bit problematic, but I think you can say that about a lot of opera. We're not going to go down that path today. Like I say, it's a different episode. I think Bohem holds up, Carol, because it's one of the simpler stories Puccini told. It's incidentally one of the reasons why I think it didn't premiere all that well. People after Manon Lescaut were expecting something a lot more grand, I think. And this, the intimacy of this story kind of shocked them. The music, though revolutionary in its way, seemed a little bit old-fashioned, I think, to the ears of 1896 listeners, especially given everything else that was going on in music at that time. So I think Bohem suffered, at least at its premiere, from being both too old-fashioned and not old-fashioned enough at the same time. I mean, what do you think about its place in its time? Well, I mean, I absolutely agree with everything you just said. It wasn't groundbreaking in the advancement of the musical language. You know, things were happening at the same time. Just a few years later was Pelias and Menizond. And that was a huge groundbreaking opera in the way it advanced the art form. But more people will come see a La Boheme than a Pelias, perhaps. Absolutely. For whatever that's worth. I saw Pelias this summer. I think it's an amazing piece. But I... I'm always happy to come back to La Boheme. I think one of the things is the characters are very human and very relatable. I think, Jeff, you and I know people who lived a bohemian life in New York right out of grad school, for instance. They went for you for opera. It was always go to New York and try to see what you can happen, what can happen in your career. And so there was the temping, the bartending, whatever you needed to do to pay your rent in, you know, the northernmost regions of Manhattan, to kind of get your big break. I'm going to challenge you right now, Carol. Um, everybody talks about bohemian life. It's a it's a common phrase. It gets used. It's been used for a couple of centuries now. So what does it mean to you? If somebody said, describe a bohemian life, how would you do that? I would say basically it's a person who's pursuing sort of a higher calling in their mind. And it might be a little bit self-elevated, uh, if you will. It may be there. It can have an element of pretension to it if you're not careful. But I'm thinking of people who are pursuing something that's maybe challenging and a little off the beaten path. And they're kind of having to live a hand-to-mouth existence to make it work. That's kind of what I imagine for a bohemian life. I think of 
again, back to New York, my friends who back in the early days got those apartments and then erected a temporary wall and suddenly they could have two more roommates and split the cost. It's that kind of idea. I think there are a couple of enduring elements to what you just said that are important because they, they're, they're present in all those friends you talked about living in New York after college, but also in the lives of the people that are depicted by Puccini in this opera. And those elements are, you got to be poor, right? Yep. No question, you got to be poor. You have to be creative. No doubt, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to live a creative life. And you have to have a mutual loathing and envy for the elite. I think that's yeah, part of it too. Anti-establishment. Absolutely. But you're also wishing that you had some of the things that they had. That's important. There's a, there's a yearning, there's a reaching that I think has to be part of it. And I'll add one more element, Carol, because I think it's critical. If it's at all possible, you should probably have consumption. That is incredibly important because, you know, any self-respecting operatic heroine of the 19th century needed to die of consumption. Yep. Yeah, I don't, and you know what? There's never a man that has consumption. It's always a woman. I think a lot of men suffered from it in life during that time because it was quite in fashion to look beautiful while dying, as they said back then. But And to be it, fashionably thin also. It, exactly. That was all part of it. But you're right. In opera, it's definitely the women that do the lion's share of having tuberculosis. That's also another podcast to unpack how a woman's death advances the man's arc of life but oh i've yeah. i've done i've done a lot of research into sickness and opera and the depiction of disease and opera i think there is three podcasts worth of stuff to talk about <laughs> yeah. there we should well, probably get, circle back to that <laughs> let's get back we're going to talk a lot more about bohemian life but i want to make sure we put this in the context of um puccini grabbing onto the story before we sort of deep dive into bohemian life because puccini himself lived some bohemian life as well so it is based on the libretto comes from a well it's got a, a little path Henri Murger in say 1847 to 1849 was a bohemian and part of what he did to make money was write these little vignettes and so they were published kind of in a serialized fashion and then eventually collected into um one published volume i'm not going to call it a novel because it's not really a through line uh and it's called scenes from the bohemian life so that tells the story of the characters we have plus some other characters like there's a character named francine there's a mimi there's a Mosetta, there's a whole bunch of different uh and then the the, the men that we all know from the opera uh shonar rodolfo which marcello they all appear but uh puccini and his librettists Ilica and Jacosa created a story, a through line, kind of honing down this the events that are in depicted in Henri Muget's little volume. The, the story is a love story, though, right? In Puccini's, they found in, in a Puccini's love story. hands. Yeah, yeah, they found a love story. They found a love story through line. They pulled it out and they created an arc that made sense. Interestingly enough, there was a little bit of a argument. Puccini had a friend who a sometime friend I mean, the friendship was kind of destroyed by this situation who also laid claim to the libretto and the story that he was going to, or not to the libretto, but just to the story of Labo that he was going to create it. And he, this is Ruggiero Leoncavallo, the composer Pagliacci. So they had been, um, they were colleagues. They were young colleagues together and they both laid claim to the story. Leoncavallo swears he had it first. And um, it was a big rivalry. And what I found interesting is um, Puccini didn't care. He just wanted to do it. He said, let him compose. <laughs> I will compose. 
the audience will decide. Well, um, I think you can sort of figure out what the audience decided because how many of you have seen Leon Cavallo's La Boheme? Well, it's not the B in the ABC, that's for sure. No, that's Puccini. So one thing that maybe um, only diehard La Boheme fans know, and I don't think I always knew it since, you know, day one of doing a La Boheme, is there's actually a, an act of the libretto that was discovered later, kind of one of those finding a manuscript in an attic sort of situations. And this was, uh, it actually has some very important plot points. It goes between what we have is act three and act four of the existing La Boheme. And it actually explains what happened to Musetta and particularly Mimi after the dramatic parting at the end of act three, not dramatic parting. It's actually dramatically calm. I mean, they have a very, Rudolfo and Mimi have a very, amicable parting they have to make an agreement and then Mimi goes off and then we get a little bit of that information in the beginning of act four but what we don't realize is Mimi has um, gone on to find uh, other protectors and Rodolfo is wildly jealous about this it kind of brings me to the fact that as we talk about bohemian life the bohemians in the show are the male characters right the women have a whole different art women didn't have a lot of opportunities if you didn't marry well or marry someone who could provide for you and you wanted to you went to this big city of paris whatever you had to one option and that was to become a kept woman but there was kind of a hierarchy you would start out as a seamstress or a shop girl so mimi is a seamstress at the beginning of act one we that's she introduces herself she stitches little flowers musette is a little further along on the path she has found herself an old wealthy keeper so she's the mistress of this older gentleman alcindoro and then, um, and we see this throughout many operas in the 19th century. Violetta is that character. Magda and La Brontine is that character without consumption. So where you see the men having a lot of agency, the women are kind of stuck in this path that only leads to um, being someone's mistress. That was their option. You either married someone who could protect you or you became a mistress. You've mentioned quite a few characters, and this is an ensemble cast for sure. The, you're right. The men are the ones sitting around the 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 fire having burning, profound thoughts having profound thoughts burning their work to, to keep warm if everything they do is a sacrifice for art and the women are sort of living in support of them interestingly and all these characters are important you mentioned the ones that represent the elite in alcindoro the sugar daddy and the 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 landlord is in the play too i'm drawing a blank on the landlord's name benoit, um, benoit thank you very much um but i felt like in merger's original book Paris itself was a character. Do you think Puccini captures that? Can this story really happen anywhere else but 1840s Paris? I mean, people have tried. People have tried. I think there's even one that was set on the moon. Yeah. Uh, in with the last 10 years. We won't even try to figure out how that um, concept meeting went. But <laughs> most of the time, there are operas that get continually set in different places fidelio being this sort of universal story of freedom and you know the independent voice of humanity gets set all kinds of places you know where oppression is a major feature but for whatever reason or not for whatever reason for obvious reasons bohem is almost i would say like four out of five times set in paris sometimes the time period has changed it could be post-war paris it could be pre-war paris it could be Paris of the time of Muget. It could be Paris of the time of 
Puccini. I mean, there's a lot of Paris, but it's always Paris. And I think Paris is an incredible character in this. Uh, you see such an evocation of Paris, even at the beginning of the opera, where they, um, Rodolfo, I think, describes the smoke going over the chimneys because mm-hmm. they're in a garret looking over the rooftops of Paris. So that garret scene is often very, you know, picturesque. But then the second act takes place in the Latin Quarter on Christmas Eve, and it's such a bustling, amazing 17 minutes of opera. The interesting thing is, at the time that Puccini wrote this opera, he had never been to Paris. Yeah, we're talking about 1896? Yeah, so he wrote Paris, I don't know, based on Mouget's descriptions, which maybe Mm -hmm. speaks well for Mouget having given a really clear picture of what Paris was like. Yeah, um, It's not the only time Puccini wrote about a place that he had never been. I think people visited Paris and still do based on descriptions like the one Roger gave and the one that Puccini has now given. Because if you think about the interwar years, all the way up through World War II, Paris was still Bohemia. I don't mean Bohemia in the sense of the place in Central Europe. I mean Bohemia in quotes, the way we're describing it now. Everybody flocked to Paris for that reason. Artists of all stripes, writers, American expats, all kinds of people yeah, the went lost to Paris. Of the twenties, thirties. I mean, so exactly. Much. And they went there because of descriptions like Merger's and Puccini's. I think this story has to happen there. You and I mentioned New York earlier, and it certainly applies in its way. But the view from an apartment here isn't Parisian rooftops. There's no cafes like Momus. It, it just doesn't exist in, in any other city but Paris. It really is, I think, the most important character in the story. I think you are absolutely correct. And I think to me, the vision is very clear, even if like in our production, we're set in a, the 1860s. So um, our director pointed out to the chorus, just, there's no Eiffel Tower yet. You know, so the the skyline doesn't have, of Paris doesn't have a lot of height. If you think about the older part of Paris, it's rooftops that are, you know, at three and four and five stories, not skyscrapers. You just gave away one of the great goofs of pretty much every opera production since Puccini's time to now. Um, of course, there was no Eiffel Tower during the setting of this story, but everyone's production has it in either a painted drop or an image. Good for good for Utah opera. I'm pretty sure there's no Eiffel Tower. Good for involved. Utah. It doesn't make any sense to worry about little um, inaccuracies like that, little anachronisms. Right. It doesn't really matter because Paris is eternal. It's the it's the forever city. That's not its technical nickname, but it is. Yeah, it does have that quality. <laughs> exactly. No, that's the eternal city. But <laughs> I think we can use forever city for Paris. But Let's talk about the piece, Carol. What are some of the musical highlights from it? I mean, because it's not just a great story. It's not just a well-told version of a place we all love. It's also pretty fantastic music. It really is. And I'd done talking with our conductor, Bob Tweeten, yesterday. We were talking about how great every page is. There's something incredibly efficient about it, too. There are operas that historically get cut you know we chop pieces of mozart recitative out because we need to bring it in under three hours or maybe in a bel canto piece we'll cut the repetition of something so there are pieces that you could think oh there's there's room for a little bit of chopping trimming but when i look at bohem and actually this is pretty common with most of puccini's works for me there's there's nothing extraneous the dramatic arc is very focused and tight and that is reflected in the music so it's just efficient and 
uh, efficiently expressive, I guess I would say. The different characters have little melodies that kind of represent them. Uh, I think you could think of a, I, I can't really, I'm not going to sing anything for you for which you should all be grateful, but Mimi <laughs> has a melody, Musetta has her waltz, Rodolfo has his um, writer music, Marcello and Rodolfo. I mean, it's just, everyone's got something. Chouinard has a great introduction to bring him in. And so when you hear those little light motifs, you're always reminded of the different characters. And there's also so many musical highlights of arias and ensembles. Not every character has an aria. So Chouinard doesn't really get an aria. He gets a Shana, which is kind of funny because he's the musician and doesn't get the aria. Right. Marcello doesn't really get an aria, the painter. But Rodolfo has a wonderful aria. Mimi gets multiples. I think she gets two. Mimi, the seamstress. Musetta, our flirtatious uh, courtesan with the sugar daddy, has her very famous waltz. And then Colline, the bass, gets a great tune. Basses don't always get great tunes in 19th century opera, but he gets one. In the fourth act, he decides to pawn his coat to buy some medicine, needed medicine for uh, Mimi, who's on her deathbed, essentially, in the garret. This actually comes from a Puccini episode. He actually pawned his own coat at one point so that he could afford to take a young lady out to dinner. So he put that in as his own event. But... All of these arias are incredibly exerptable. They're incredibly famous, well-known. And then, of course, there's the beautiful love duet. It's just one highlight after another. This story is very intimate, though. I mean, you're talking a, a lot of the highlights you just gave could apply to many different operas. You know, they they have these sort of understandable uh, mile markers throughout them. You know, big arias, big duets, big mm -hmm. dance numbers, big chorus numbers. And Boheme certainly has that. But the story is not grand in the way opera often is. And I think that might've been kind of a shock in 1896. People expected yeah. something a little bit more theatrical and spectacular, but a lot of this story, Carol, is in an attic apartment with one candle lighting it figuratively. Yeah, in fact, this, the scene or the, the duet where Rodolfo and Mimi meet and then have a couple of arias and are in love by the, their duet, again, very efficient. Opera doesn't waste a lot of time getting there. Right. The arias are not huge presentational arias. They're conversations. First, Rodolfo introduces himself to Mimi and talks about what makes him tick. And then he says, will you tell me about yourself? And she's obligated at the point to respond with an equally uh, revealing and intimate aria. So those two arias are just a conversation between two people that we get to peer in at. There's a lot of... Puccini hallmarks in this. I think the orchestration's incredible. Um, the first act ends with a high C. That's kind of a thing, you know, and it's it's just such lovely writing and great storytelling. Is there anything about the Utah production in particular that people should be excited about? Is there anything special about this version of this timeless tale? Well, we're not setting it on the moon. As I say, we're setting it in 1860. Worth noting, yes. <laughs> uh, important to know that. So you're yeah. not going to see the most groundbreaking production that ever happened at La Boheme. Um, but I don't believe that La Boheme needs that kind of trapping attached to it. Because, because what we have for you is this really great cast of, of frankly, a lot of young up-and-comers. And I love presenting, I love when we present people at the beginning of their career who have a big future, a bright future ahead of them. These are people who have gone through maybe some of the big uh, training programs have done, 
you know, they're not newbies to the opera form. I don't mean to imply that at all, but um, they're still, you know, in the flowering of their career. They're past their bohemian stage, but and they're moving forward. But I love we're um, introducing to our audience, Laura Wildey, who is a wonderful singer I met first in Santa Fe as a young artist there. And then uh, she transferred, she changed from being mezzo about the time I met her, she was changing from being a mezzo soprano to a soprano. So she's firmly in that very full lyric and then almost, you know, towards light dramatic, like she sings, uh, she sang Yanufa in, of Janacek in, um, in uh, Santa Fe. We brought back, we're bringing back one of our former young artists who went off to the Adler program in San Francisco, and that's Chris Oglesby. And I think you got to know Chris Oglesby even a little better this summer. At he U- just did a Pinkerton with us in the Grand Teton Music Festival, and it was fantastic. Yeah, so he's really making a splash now that he's out of his training years and his apprentice years in um, this bo- this uh, Italian, 19th century Italian rap, very lyric, the, the stuff that we just, you know, we think of when we think of Caruso. Oh, fun fact, in fact, Caruso, when he was finally cast as R- Rodolfo, he's actually the one who helped make this opera a success after its sort of rocky initial reaction from critics and audiences. And then when it was recast with a tenor who was really outstanding, like Caruso, then suddenly it kind of took off in popularity. We have Marina Costa Jackson, who we're lucky to have living here in Utah. Uh, but she has sung all over and she's our Musetta. So we've just got some really great artists. And uh, William Guambosu is making his Utah opera debut as Colline. James Westman is returning. He's probably the most established as far as like career uh, as Marcello. And Danny Belcher is also a, a no stranger to our Utah opera stage. And he's no. coming in as a luxury Benoit Alstein Doro. It's a lot of fun to have him around. I'm trying to think, who did I miss cast-wise? And Schonard, we're featuring... Not only featuring a former young artist, but a current young artist, Chilidzi Ndo, who's a wonderful baritone from South Africa, is uh, making his big role debut in, U- in Utah Opera as Shonard. He's been on, on stage in small parts last season, but this is his biggest venture. I love all the connections in this world, this opera world. I mean, William Guanbosu was also with us for our butterfly this year. He was oh, our yeah. bonds and he was fantastic. And having Danny Belcher back on the Utah Opera stage just seems right. That's always right. And this is an actually fun fact for you. When Chris Oglesby was in our Young Artist Program before he went to San Francisco, he sang the role of Parpignol, the toy seller who appears, has two lines, the same line twice, in (laughs) Act 2. And so now our current tenor young artist, Jeremiah Tyson, is making his Utah opera debut in the role of the toy seller Parpignol. So, well, that means a there's a Rodolfo in his future too. Exactly, then. it's like a Parpignol legacy. Well, Carol, before we let everyone go, I can imagine it's possible. Doesn't seem likely, but it's possible that there will be people in the audience or people who are considering a ticket purchase who don't know Bohem, who haven't seen it. And I think this, like Paris, this story is forever. And we've certainly seen this kind of thing depicted in other art forms. So if there's people out there that maybe aren't opera people, but they're Broadway people, there are a couple of Broadway shows that hew pretty close to this topic, right? Exactly. Well, a very literal one. And back in the early aughts, Baz Luhrmann, the very famous film director, Moulin Rouge, did a very splashy, stylized bohème that we just refer to now as the Broadway bohème. And that actually made a huge 
huge impact on Broadway. And but before that, even we have a similar story of Bohemians, and I've mentioned New York, uh, living in the village, facing an epidemic that was terrifying and still is a terrifying part of life. And that was the AIDS epidemic. So that's rent. And that um, tells, in fact, it makes many, many very obvious nods to its Puccini source material besides just the, 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 the actual story, just updating it in a way with another, with a different, equally terrifying disease. Well, a much more serious one, really. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, we make jokes about people wasting away on fainting couches with consumption and the AIDS epidemic is obviously a lot more chilling right, <laughs> than right. those. Yeah. And it, um, it, and it really hit the zeitgeist in the 90s in a way yeah. that um, probably consumption did back in the 1890s because there was no cure for consumption back then. And of course, there's, you know, we have yet to have found a complete cure for AIDS, just management yeah. at this point. So a um, little bit more sobering, but um, certainly. And, you know, there's sobering moments in Bohem as well. And Rent is a very different kind of story. But I find it interesting that there are thematic parallels from then to now through. Yeah, and I mean, if you really want to think about this, you know, just to be a little bit more serious for a second, the story is about young people living their life and then the reality of life hitting them like a ton of bricks in act three and four. There are hints that it's not going to end well earlier on, but really it's like a transition from the carefree bohemian existence to the ones that survived the opera. How are we going to really move forward as maybe adults? How are we going to take life a little bit more seriously now that we've seen that there's more to life than fun and games and art? Yeah, there is a leaving childish things behind message that lingers Absolutely. at the end, I think, for sure. Carol, I feel like we went down bummer lane there at the end, and I didn't mean to do that. But I wanted people to know that this story has had a life long past Puccini, this kind of story anyways. And we certainly don't want people to think that they're in for a very depressing time in the theater. Utah Opera is going to be presenting its latest version of La Boheme October 7th through 15th at the Capitol Theater. And trust me, you will leave maybe with a small tear in your eye, but mostly you'll be singing. This is one of the great operas of all time, even though people at its premiere didn't realize it yet. It endures, like Paris, like stories of starving artists, well into our time. Those of you listening may already be opera fans and have friends that are not or have never seen an opera. And so I think Bohem is a great way to bring them into the fold. And make sure to visit utahopera.org for showtimes and information about how to get your tickets to this incredible production of La Boheme. Carol, I have to say that these opera previews are some of the best times I have in podcasting. I can't wait to do the next one, which I believe will be Little Prince. Is that right? In the new year, we will be doing Little Prince in January. Can't wait. I'm really looking forward to that. Until then, I'm Jeff Counts. I'm Carol Anderson. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera Season Sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.